This is the Practical Homeopathy Podcast, episode number 73 with Joette Calabrese. This is Joette Calabrese, and I'd like to welcome you to the Practical Homeopathy Podcast. Women and men worldwide are taking back control of their family's health and learning how to heal their bodies naturally, safely, and effectively. So if you're hungry to learn more, you've come to the right place. Stay tuned as we give you the tools and the inspiration you need as I share my decades of experience and knowledge using this powerful medicine we call homeopathy. Good morning, Joette. Hi, Kate. Always good to see you. Another podcast. Super excited because we're going to talk about the Banerjees today. And I want people to know, I want to know more about your time at the Banerjee Clinic and how you came to meet them. And maybe you'll sneak in some protocols that you learned there that we haven't heard a lot about. So I'm excited for the podcast today. Okay, great. And this is podcast, what, number 70 or 71 or something? I think it'll be like 73, something like that. You've done a lot of podcasts. There's so much to learn. I feel like we could go on forever. Well, that's <laughs> my goal. <laughs> Into yeah, eternity. You can never retire. <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot of people are wondering. They're worried that someday you might retire. And then what? We'll be stuck. Yeah, I don't know that I'll retire. I might slow down a bit, but I can't imagine stopping this altogether. It's in my blood now. Yeah, I can't imagine you not doing it either. Okay, so let's talk about the Banerjees. Tell me, Joette, a little bit about how did you come to find out about the Banerjees and then start your discussions with them? Well, if you're in the homeopathic community, you couldn't help but hear about them. So some 20 some years ago, I heard at one of our national conferences, you know, there are these, this father and son team in India who each see 100 patients per day. And I thought to myself, that's impossible. How could that possibly be? Because I only knew classical homeopathy, which requires that you take a case that lasts, you know, at least an hour, more often an hour and a half. And then you've got hours worth of work after it often. So I was incredulous. And then about a year or so later, I went to another conference and someone else said exactly the same thing. You know, they're this father and son team in India who each see a hundred patients per day. And I said, I just, I don't get it. So I had always known that if I really wanted to learn homeopathy in great depth, that I had to work alongside a homeopath that was seeing many patients per day and had not had any interruptions in his education in the generation before him and the generation before him. Well, so I have a question. Let me stop you right there for a second. When they were talking about these Bay energies, seeing 100 patients a day, were they talking about them in a negative way or just sort of matter-of-fact way? How were they portrayed? No, it was just matter-of-fact. Okay. It was of interest because we were all heavily burdened and mired down with these heavy classical methodologies that required that it took us an hour and a half to take a case. And it's not that we were complaining because we didn't know any other way. But it was certainly something that was so juxtaposition that it pricked up my ears. And maybe we're jumping ahead of ourselves here, but that leads me to think about the Banerjees and how they originally started. They must have used the classical method of practicing homeopathy. Is that their background as well? 
Well, it had been passed down through their families and each of them had studied homeopathy. So they had all gone to homeopathy school, but in India, that's medical school. So they were medical homeopathic physicians and they had gone through many years of study and had put their time in so that they could be in practice and understand. I mean, obviously, if you're in medical school, you've got anatomy, physiology, pathology, etc. And that's a very important basis of being in practice. So yes, they did have traditional homeopathy as their background. But when your patients are lining up in front of your clinic, your research center, the night before, and they're busing them in from small villages, and as they open the doors of the bus, and I've watched this daily when I worked there, and the doors would open, the bulging bus would empty out, I don't know, 80 people, 100 people? I don't know, maybe I'm exaggerating, but at least 80 people. And then they would just line up and sit on the sidewalk with their blankets and wait till the next day to see them. Oh my gosh. So after a while, when you're seeing the same condition over and over and over, and then another condition over and over and over, by the sheer numbers after a while, it narrows down to, it's most likely this remedy. Mm -hmm. If you see, just like we know in, in classical homeopathy for acutes, if you see someone with a hematoma, the first thing we think of, generally speaking, is arnica. Now, we can also use hamamelis. We can also use bellus piranus. We have other choices, but we have all learned in day one of homeopathy school, arnica montana for hematomas or ecchymosis. So isn't that, in essence, <laughs> a practical protocol? Yes, it absolutely is a practical protocol. And... When I was practicing classical homeopathy, I wanted more protocols. I had some, that was one of them. I knew that strep throat was met with belladonna. I mean, everybody knows that. We can also use Heparsulf. We can certainly use Mercurius. There are other remedies that we can consider, but we generally start out with an extremely painful strep throat. It's generally speaking, belladonna. Now, how did we come to that? Well, after a while, you'd have to be as we say in Italian, testa duda, which means hard head, to not pick up on the fact that this works time and time again for most people, not everyone, but for most people. So when they came up with these protocols, it was out of sheer need to be able to fulfill the requirements of meeting with a thousand people a day. Because of course, they weren't the only doctors treating. They had, you know, when I was there, um, the last seven, eight years that I was there, there were 12 senior doctors and correspondingly junior doctors to take the cases, to start opening the cases for each of those senior doctors. And with 12 of them all seeing 100 patients per day, do the math, that's 1,200 patients in a day. That means at the end of one week, it's 7,200 people. Right. I often wonder, and we were talking about this earlier, that if Boricky or Kent or Hahnemann had that many people at their doorstep every day, if they too wouldn't have come up with these protocols. They would have had more protocols. They would have been forced to come up with answers more quickly so they could get to the next person who was being carried in in a sling or was with his family carrying him in. And we used to meet the ambulances in the back of the Homeopathic Research Foundation. The ambulance would drive in and we would walk outside because the person could not be carried in. I mean, the facilities were much different than the facilities that we're accustomed to. 
And so the family had put the person in the ambulance and now we went out and met with the family and the patient and we would take that case. And when we finished, we went right back into the office again. And the next, you know, 75 people were waiting in line to get their turn in. We did not leave until every person was taken care of. And they have quite the staff too. So there's a big process as far as people receiving the information, you know, so it's not just one doctor alone seeing those hundred. No, there's a senior doctor and a junior doctor, and then there's a junior, junior doctor. And then there are the pharmacists. And then there are those who do the processing and the accounting. And then when that's all finished and the case has all been taken, there's the junior doctor who was on the case with the senior doctor goes up to the second floor and hands it to the person who inputs it into a computer. So now we've got a record of it. And so the second floor is just as humming as the first floor. So what typically happens? So say I'm a person outside the Banerjee Clinic, I'm waiting in line, I, now it's my turn, what happens? Um, the first thing they do is they stand in line when they get into their time to meet up with someone. There's a little window, like a bank window, almost like a bank teller. And they get their name and they get a little bit of information and they said, okay, we'll call you in a little while. And then they have a loudspeaker and they call out the name of the person an hour later, who knows how long it is, 10 minutes. I don't really know the logistics of that. But when they're called in, then they're sat down in a large room where the junior doctor starts taking the case. Let me see your x-rays that you've brought in. Let's see the blood labs, whatever you've got. Some people don't bring those. Some do have them with them. Um, Give me your age, your name, et cetera, et cetera. And they get all the statistics and all that information. And then what is the chief complaint? What are the satellite concerns, et cetera? And it's all written down. But it's written down in a very concise way. By the way, it's all handwritten. Kind Mm -hmm. of interesting. And it must be required, absolute, in perfect penmanship. It's gorgeous. What they hand to the senior doctor is perfection. And if Pratip Banerjee saw one little mistake, he'd give it back to the doctor, the younger doctor, and say, do it right. I don't want any misspelled words. I don't want any scribbling. Use whiteout, clean it up. If you have to do it over again, do it again. And the penmanship had to be perfect. They were real sticklers for protocol. Hmm. Okay, so now what happens next? Then they're usually the case is taken, and I imagine that they're told to sit back down again until they're called again now to meet with the senior doctor. And that's when they're brought in by the junior doctor into the consultation chambers, as they call it. And the person is led in by the junior doctor. The junior doctor then sits next to the senior doctor. And I was, of course, privileged to sit between them, which was wonderful because I was privy to everything that was going on and could observe the case that was taken and what was now going to be considered what medicines were going to be used. And so the patient is sitting in front of us at the desk. If Pratip deemed that it was necessary that he palpated, then there was an examining room and the person was instructed to get on the examining table. If it was something more more personal, then the person was brought into a separate little side room and Pratip would observe what needed to be looked at. And then the person would get dressed again, come back and sit down. If none of that was required, he might check their pulse. Um, He might listen to their heart, and I shouldn't say might, he often did it. For the most part, he would use these methods. If they brought their x-rays, he'd turn on the little x-ray light and put the x-rays up so we could all see, and he would look at that and look at the CT scans. Anything that they brought in was observed, and even though the junior doctor had already done that, Pratip would always look again 
to make mm -hmm. sure that everything was tight and orderly and organized. And then the patient would explain to him what was going on. Apertie spoke many languages. So did Dr. Prasanta Banerjee. And so did most of the doctors because they're educated people. Many of them had been educated in England. And so they came with English plus many of the dialects. Now, I don't know if they could speak all of them, but they certainly understood the dialects of India. And there are a myriad of them. <laughs> and so by that time, that's when Pratip then starts speaking to this junior doctor and he is directing him as to what the medicines are. The junior doctor is writing it down. The junior doctors that had been around for a long period of time knew exactly what he was going to say because they are protocols. Knowing what the condition is, they've already written half of the case up already in anticipation of what Dr. Pratip or Prasanta was about to say. And they were usually right. Okay, so if they were certain or had an idea, they would write that down and then... In advance, just to move on. things along faster. Right. Okay. After that was completed, then the junior doctor would hand the form. It was a small form with all of this gorgeous penmanship on it. And there was no English. It was all in Sanskrit and in Latin because that's what the homeopathic medicines are, of course. They're all Latin. That's all that was there. Nothing was in English. He would hand it to the senior doctor, Dr. Pratip or Dr. Prasanta Banerjee or any other senior doctor who was taking the case, and they would sign off. Mm. Now, that sign-off meant that was done. Hand it to the junior doctor. The junior doctor would guide the patient back to the large room where they would then direct them to go to now the pharmacy, which is all connected. It's all part of the compound. And they would take their form with them, and then the pharmacists knew exactly what to do from there. Now, I'm curious, if you were sitting in between them and they were speaking another language, how were you able to write down what their protocols were? Did they talk in English much? The doctors would speak in English. The patients would speak in their tongue. Oh. The doctors understood what the patients were saying, but the conversation between the two doctors was always in English. Oh, that's nice. Okay. Because so I'm imagining, you know, how are you translating this, Joette? Right. Well, <laughs> the first year I was lost and I had watched many Indian movies before we got there so that I could kind of get up to snuff so I could understand their English because, of course, it is different yeah. than ours. And I listened to hours and watched hours of Indian movies, good and bad ones. <laughs> Bollywood, which is mostly dancing. You know, you're not really learning much of the language. But you get the idea of the culture, that's for sure. <laughs> and so the first year was very difficult for me. I was really lost in what they were saying, especially because I was working with Dr. Prasanta Banerjee, uh, Pratip's father. And he was a little more difficult for me to understand. He did not have the English that I understood as well as I did Pratip's. Mm. But nonetheless, I knew what the condition was and they would also discuss the condition. And, you know, I'm going to take that back. Was there anything written on the, this form that said in English what the condition was? No, there wasn't. Not that I recall, there wasn't. Mm can't believe I can't remember that. I was there for, well, I figured out cumulatively I was there for just over a year and a half. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah, that's how long I spent there. I would go every year. I'd have to come back to the U.S. because, I mean, I had to work. <laughs> Nobody was paying me to do this. I had to work. I had a family. My children were all adults, but nonetheless, actually the first year I was there, my youngest son was in high school and my parents were around so that he was with them a lot. But I did have a life, so I had to go back home again and then recover right. the amount of 
hours and work was phenomenal. And you were always sick. I was always getting sick when I went there. Amoebic dysentery. I got whooping cough one year. I got unknown microorganism <laughs> overload. <laughs> well, you were exposed to the gamut while you were there. What were some of the conditions that you saw? I saw everything. <laughs> I saw leprosy, active tuberculosis, AIDS, cancer that was not hidden on the inside, cancer that had now gone to the outside of the body so that it was 100% visible and large and extensive. Lot of mouth cancer, lot of that. Mm -hmm. Because uh, some people in India chew betel nut and it's not just the betel nut that they're chewing, it's got tobacco mixed in it and it's got lots of unsavory properties and it becomes a habit for many people and not just men, believe it or not, even some women. And it eats away at the inside of the mouth and causes cancer or abscesses. I saw a lot of mouth cancers and mouth abscesses. We saw hydrocephalus time and time and time again. Um, we saw extreme skin infections because of being exposed to the streets. Bacteria and... Bacteria, that's right. Staph infections that had gone rampant, a lot of cellulitis, so a lot of acute issues, but we also saw colitis and food intolerances and allergies and menstrual conditions and multiple sclerosis, you name it, we saw it all. And when you're seeing 100 patients per day, you've got a lot of choices from which to see. <laughs> and when you say saw, you talk about how you would walk through the clinic and you were shoulder to shoulder with these people and diseases too. Yes. Yes. It's interesting. My observation was as sick as these people often were and as humble a beginnings that they came from or humble of a setting that they came from in the small villages or on the streets of Calcutta. When they came to the clinic, the women had freshly clean saris. Their hair was beautifully oiled and braided back. They were clean. Their nails were clean. They came with dignity. It was a beautiful thing to behold. No one came in cargo pants. No one came. <laughs> Leggings. <laughs> or le Well, I mean, there was that too. Here. Underneath. But, and not everyone was in the traditional garb. There were you know, the younger people don't often wear saris. It's usually the older women who wore the saris and all the younger people who came maybe from the small villages. But if they were city people in Calcutta, they often were wearing Western clothes. So we saw the whole gamut from the top of society to the bottom of society. It was really very, very fascinating. And when we walked through the halls, my friend, Dr. Vivekta Sharma, and we became very dear friends, we're still in touch, would hold my hand to draw me through the crowds in the building. We're still in the building. And the only way I could keep up with her was she would hold my hand and pull me through like we were playing a childhood game to get me through the swarms. Meanwhile, I was being held back by the sheer crowds of people in the building waiting their turn. Hmm. Wow. And outside too, probably. Oh, outside was just as bad and sometimes worse than that because on the street, there were all the vendors in front of the clinic, the, the research foundation, and that's where people would perhaps buy their meals and the whole street was lined with the lunches and dinners that were being made and uh, with flames uh, right on the street with brick all around and a little flame. And sometimes the vendors would be sitting cross-legged, frying up 
these delicious little cakes that are fried in deep mustard seed oil with vegetables and spices inside of them, smelled wonderful. And that's what the usually those who came in from the towns would eat. And so you're negotiating the sidewalk with everything. Plus, not to mention, Calcation dogs. I believe that's the way it's pronounced because it's named after Calcutta. There are roaming street dogs that all look alike. And there are hordes of them everywhere. And they're really friendly dogs. Some of them have mange, some of them don't. They're just everywhere. So they're waiting for the garbage to be tossed or to be put in a pile and they go after it. So it's quite a street scene. Very exciting. Yeah. Okay, I want to take a step back for just a minute and talk about how you came to speak with the Banerjees and to be able to actually go and sit and observe them. I had a colleague who contacted me. He was Indian and he works in my region when I used to live in Buffalo, New York area. And he had met the Banerjees previously, years before. And he contacted me, shot me an email and said, Joe, you know, doctors Pratip and Prasanta Banerjee, I'm bringing them into town and I'm going to have them speak at Damon College. Now, he knew that I would be interested not only because I'm a homeopath and we were good acquaintances, but also I had been teaching homeopathy at Damon College years prior to that. And he thought, well, since you were a teacher there and et cetera, et cetera, perhaps you'd be interested in coming to this uh, engagement where I'm engaging them to speak for about, I think it was six hours, seven hours, because they were going to be speaking at um, MD Anderson. No, they'd gone to MD Anderson and then they had come to Roswell Park, the cancer institution in Buffalo, New York. And since they were there, he thought, well, let's see if we can get them to speak to a large group of people. And I said, sure. And he said, look, um, you don't have to pay the fee. And I said, no, no, no. Let me explain the way I feel about this. I'm happy to pay the fee. I'm happy to make a donation. Just please make sure that I'm seated next to them during lunch. Oh, wow. (laughs) And he said, oh, all right. So he did that. He arranged for that. And so for a full day, they spoke. And when we had lunch and then we had breaks, we actually went to a separate room and I had lunch with my colleague and the woman who arranged all of this at Damon College. And the two doctors, Banerjee and I, had lunch together, a private lunch, which was fantastic because I got a chance to speak to them and ask if I could observe their work. Now, I don't know if we made it clear earlier, Kate, but I have always known that if I was going to really learn homeopathy, I had to go to India. Had to, because that's where it's been practiced uninterruptedly for the last 200 years. And that would have given me insight. I had tried to go to India and work with Dr. Ramakrishnan years prior to that. And I'd studied with him for five years in Toronto, some 10 years prior to all of this. And he had a program that was shutting down at the time. He was not taking any new homeopaths that could observe in his program. So it was a big disappointment to me, but now I had another opportunity. And when Pratip Banerjee said to me, certainly, just contact us. We know all about you. They'd done their homework on me. They had looked me up online to make sure that I was legitimate, what I had been doing. And once he knew that, then I suppose he felt comfortable to invite me to work with them. Now, that was easier said than done because the communications between the U.S. and India, technical communications is often very difficult. 
I wrote to them and there was no response. I didn't write to him exactly. I wrote to their director and I didn't get a response. And then I wrote again and didn't get a response and wrote again. And I was just tenacious about it. I just stayed on it for, I'm going to say, a good year. It took really? almost a year for me to actually communicate with them and then set up a date, find out when they were going to be in town, because of course I'd like to work with their senior doctors as well. And I did many times, but I really wanted to sit with them. Mm-hmm. And then finally we got it all set up. And even to the last week, we had our tickets for Calcutta, which are nothing to sneeze at. It's pretty darn expensive to do this. And I still wasn't sure that the date was an absolute. <gasps> You're kidding. We just took a chance. I said, this is worth a chance. If it turns out that they're not there, that they're on a speaking tour, which is what they do regularly, we'll just make it into, I guess, a vacation in India. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So this is not an easy process, but it was a fun process. And I got to know them very well. And the first year I got in there, they were renovating their offices. And so we were working in somewhat of a makeshift setting still very lovely. And I was able to work mostly with Dr. Prasanta Banerjee, for which I'm very grateful. I would say the full 13 weeks, pretty much I worked only with him and maybe a few days here and there, I worked with Dr. Prateep, his son. Wow. That's so awesome that you got to do that. Well, and during the day we would work from approximately 10, I would get there around 10 in the morning Dr. Prasanta or Dr. Pratip Banerjee didn't get into a little bit later because they went on house calls to people's homes and they would often get in at around noon. Meanwhile, I'd been working with the senior doctors. I sat with them, the other doctors, and observed and recorded all of their cases as well. And then Dr. Prasanta and Pratip would end at around, oh, sometimes eight, nine o'clock. But I would then go with a group of doctors, which would include Dr. Vivekta Sharma, my friend. And we would go to the other clinic that they had. And that was in another part of town. We would pile in. It was such a blast. They're mostly, the doctors are a good deal younger than I am by about 20 years. So (laughs) I was like the old mother. And they would stuff me into this car. Everybody was sitting on everybody else's laps. And we'd go rumbling through the town and through Calcutta. And and, oh my gosh, it's a crazy, that that in itself is just an experience. And we'd get there and then we'd go through this old building and up to the top floor and sit up there. And it was so hot. It was so hot. And the doors were closed and we'd all have our dinner. Now, most of the dinners were brought in by the doctors, their wives, or they made it themselves. Or sometimes they'd only go to certain street vendors. They wouldn't just buy from anyone. And they would buy us a dinner. We'd all have these fantastic dinners together. And I was turned on to the masala tea that they were accustomed to drinking. And to this day, I still drink masala tea every day because of how they turned me on to that. And then once we finished eating, everything was cleared up, opened the doors and people would throng in. I've got pictures of it, long, long table. And the, the, on one side, the women would line up and on the other side, the men would line up and all across the whole table were all the doctors. It was fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So, you mean they were all listening to the cases at the same time? No, each doctor was taking a different case. Yes, that's so there what were I maybe meant. ten doctors. Each one was seeing a different case. So, we would see. I'm going to say there were another two hundred people, three hundred people that come in that night, split by ten. Each one had seen thirty cases within a couple of hours. By the time I got back to the hotel, I was how do I say? <laughs> Pooped. 
<laughs> I put in a 12 hour day and intensely writing. And I, I, in the heat. <laughs> in the heat. The heat was at times pretty extreme. Even though I was there in January, which was the most comfortable. I was there usually January, February, and part of March every year. So I would get back to the hotel. My husband would always greet me at the hotel door, which was great. So as I got out of the car, he would meet me right at the door. He's such a gentleman. Give me a big kiss. Tell me I was doing a great job. I was half dead. Walk me <laughs> to the elevator. Up we would go to our room and I would shower down and... Um, I would take a couple of cases myself of my own clients who needed help. They knew that I was out of town, but certain people still needed help. And so I would still work with folks back home and work on those cases. I remember one time I had a consult with you when you were in India. Do you remember that? I, do. I don't know. <laughs> and, and imagine how tired you were trying to listen to my probably after just seeing all those diseases, you're like, oh, that's nothing, honey. <laughs> does put life in perspective. There's no doubt about right. it. But, you know, we also saw the mundane as well. We often saw people with just, you know, some acne. The middle class complained about that. There's an emerging, strong, educated class there. And I shouldn't say that it's emergingly, emerging. It's just growing more rapidly lately in the last, I don't know, 50 years or so. There've always been the educated. And there've always been those who are well-traveled and who are learned. But it's growing faster more than ever because of technology and because it's now a free market there. And we're seeing more and more entrepreneurial businesses start up, which is a beautiful thing to behold. Okay, so how many times have you gone to India now? It's quite a few. It was a number of times. And I actually lost count. I want to say it was nine times. And each time was anywhere between three weeks and 13 weeks. When I totaled it up, Cumulatively, I would say that it was just over a year and a half of time spent there. That's and awesome. I recorded over 7,000 cases. And then, of course, they didn't come in order according to a repertory. So when I got home, I had months of work to organize all of these protocols and information and translating them from cases to protocols so that just because the case that came in first in the morning was a menopausal case and the next one was a colitis case doesn't mean it's going to automatically fall into my notebook that way. I had to now transcribe, okay, this is the female section. Okay, put that case in here and what the protocol is. This is the GI section. Okay, put that colitis into that section. So I had a lot of work to do. And to this day, even years later, I'm still organizing my notes so that I can find them more quickly when I need them. But for the most part, I've memorized the most commonly used, the ones that I use on a day-to-day -day basis that I don't even have to think about them any longer. Not unlike the Banerjee's. You know, what's fascinating, I didn't say this when I described it, but they don't allow their underlings, their junior doctors or senior doctors to take notes, not on the patient, but on the case. So in other words, they did not say, okay, we're going to use carboanomalous for hormonal conditions in a woman going through menopause, they were not allowed to write that down. You memorize it. That's how you learn it. And after those junior doctors had been there at least a year, they had them all memorized. They allowed me to do it because I was observing. So were there other homeopaths there doing this right alongside you? 
Um, every once in a while, a homeopath would come from Switzerland. Usually there were medical doctors who were practicing homeopathy or from Germany or where they had seen the Banerjee speak and were curious and wanted to know what they were doing and observe. But they usually were there for about a week. Some of them were from Madrid. There were a couple of doctors, an endocrinologist who I got to know the first and second year, and she would stay right along with me and do exactly what I was doing, which was writing down absolutely every single case. But it surprised me to see that they would come and observe, but not write down the protocols. What? (laughs) That was the gold. Yes. So it always flabbergasted me. And then years later, after going year after year after year and getting to know Dr. Pratip and his lovely wife, we became friends. His wife and my husband and I went on a vacation together and we spent a lot of time together over meals. And she told me that they were so excited about having me there because I was the only person ever, I was really surprised to hear this, ever who had ever come for a 13-week span and then come the next year and the next year and the next year and the next year and the next year to learn these protocols. They had never seen anyone do that before. And so for that reason alone, they gave us and me extra privileges, which was quite an honor. So you're likely the holder of the most information of the Banerjee protocols other than the people at their clinic. Well, I am one of them. There's one other person that I know of who I got to know, lovely person who helps them write and does research for them. She's a PhD in nursing in California, and I'm sure she did this to the degree that I did as well. Okay. But she brought it back to teach nurses and to teach professionals. Mm-hmm. And then there was another woman that I learned about who was from Japan who came several times as well. But according to what I've been told, I was the only one that had done it so many times and for so long a period of time. Wow. Other than those who had been working for the Banerjee's. I knew there was a reason we loved you so much, Joette. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I'm ridiculously tenacious. I mean, when I chomp onto something, I can't let go. My mother yeah. always used to say that no what you do, you do it up to your eyeballs. And she was right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I've heard you talk about a number of areas in your life where you didn't give up. You just kept pursuing that until you got where you wanted to be or got the answer that you wanted. So I actually think that came from being in sales because I used to sell real estate. I used to sell airtime with NBC. And (laughs) I was a little girl. I sold vacuum cleaner bags from door to door because my father was an entrepreneur and he sold. And so I believe that on some level I was trained or maybe it's innate. It's probably a combination of both that when someone says no, then you just have to ask 10 more people (laughs) or you'll get that. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. You just keep going. No, doesn't mean no, don't be ridiculous. It just means, okay, on you go. Next step. Right. That's awesome. All right, so let's wrap this up and just give us a summary as to maybe your greatest insights from being with the Banerjee's all those times. One of the cadences that I got from Dr. Prasanta Banerjee, and I used to call them Prasanta-isms and Pratip-isms, and so when they would say something wise, I would write it down. It was so fascinating. But the one that I so much use, not only in my day-to-day life, but I teach others to consider is he used to tell the patients all the time, especially those who were of the upper middle class and could go to many doctors. 
he would tell them, not to the, those who were suffering terribly, but for those who wanted to be proactive. Instead of using the word proactive or to tell them to calm down with that concept, he would say, stop hunting for disease. I love that statement. Now, that does not apply to people who are really suffering from serious illnesses. Mm -hmm. But if you're well, stop looking to see whether or not you've got this gene or that gene that might trigger. Stop looking for whether or not you might have the potential of an illness and test after test after test. That only provokes anxiety. So if someone is ill, obviously we have to do our research. They have to be tested to determine what the condition is so that we know what to springboard from. But when someone is not really unwell, just enjoy life. You know, you've been handed a pearl called life. Take it, run with it, and enjoy it, and learn how to treat others and become the healer for those who are truly suffering. And stop looking for the potential that, you know, I'm 40, maybe I should go get that mammogram every year. Or now you're 50, you should have a colonoscopy every year. Really? I question all of that. So I urge folks to stop looking around and just live life. And if something comes up, okay, now we look into it. Oh, Joette, thank you so much for sharing about the Banerjees and sharing their wisdom with us. I think we should do another segment on this so that we can learn more about what your conversations were and maybe some more protocols. So I'm excited. I think this has been a great podcast. Yeah, thanks, Kate. It's always fun. You just listened to a podcast from practicalhomeopathy.com, where nationally certified homeopath, public speaker, and author Joette Calabrese shares her passion for helping families stay strong through homeopathy. Joette's podcasts are available on iTunes, Google Play, Blueberry, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Thank you for listening to this podcast with Joette Calabrese. To learn more and find out if homeopathy is a good fit in your health strategy, visit practicalhomeopathy.com.